All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast today with Meta Darberg. Hi, Meta, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Yes, absolutely. I'm happy that you're with us today. And, um, you know, we, we, we always kind of do it the same way in the sense that we're starting with an icebreaker question, uh, which is uh, uh, the easiest question for, 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 you know, for people to, to kind of answer because they need to talk about themselves. I think that for most people is, is the easiest thing to do. Um, it would be great if you could kind of, you know, give us a background on where you're coming from, right? So who are you? What is kind of your, your, your story in a professional context, right? So what, what are kind of the different stages um, that led up where you are today? Yeah, so I'm originally from Legoland, also known as Denmark. I like to build things. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I had businesses before I could even really do much else in life. My grandpa bought his lunch at my little wooden uh, oven um, every day when I was, you know, three. And um, I always liked this idea of like, like growing up as a kid, I really wanted to be like a grocer because when you're a kid, that's sort of like the most tangible, right? We had like this little corner shop and every day I would go with my mom and buy a little bit of this and that. And when I got older, I got to bag. And I was like, you know, seven or something, standing there bagging foods. And, and I really loved it. And so it was sort of imperative that as growing up, I, I started building ideas out. And I sold my first company 20 years ago, uh, actually right before moving to the U.S. originally. And so I have a very sort of generic past in the sense that I'm a company builder, but I've also worked for the foreign ministry. I've worked for an investment bank. I've worked for Hummel, which is originally a German sportswear company. I was responsible for the North American operations. And so I've done a lot of different things, but I think the one common denominator is that I'm very good at figuring out solutions to unknown problems or you know what you, what you should say. So I've, I've sort of looked at the threat of what it is that I do and I put puzzle pieces together. I, I, I like pattern making. I like um, taking very complex problems and, and trying to apply simple solutions. And so, you know, yes, I'm an economist by training. I'm not a doctor. There's, there's a lot of sort of, um, of the traditional data in terms of what mm -hmm. does your what does your sort of um, work history or resume look like? But I find that it's less interesting to some extent than the way we think about problems and the way we try and solve the problems. Mm. Okay, interesting. So, uh, you know, tell me about uh, that. I find it very interesting if somebody's moving from Europe to the US. So um, uh, tell me about that period of like, you know, um, moving to, to New York. How did you eventually, you know, get get to the US was that you know by through through your you know that job at the time or what was kind of the story there yeah so I guess everything has a story right so I I actually lived outside of Denmark before I had lived in Amsterdam Paris London before I originally moved to LA mm -hmm. and LA was not planned by any means I got sick when I was 23 um when the you know 23 year old pap smear um rolled around um, I unfortunately was one of the people that didn't go free and mm -hmm. so I had to take a hiatus from my studies mm -hmm. and move home and get treated and 
when I was uh, healthy to get back, um, you know, the school year had started, all of your friends were sort of back in the realm and I naively applied to some uh, consular generals around the world, not knowing that that's generally a job you get like a year and a half in advance. Uh, <laughs> super lucky because in LA, they wrote me and said, well, the woman we had hired for the job actually had some firm family circumstances. So if you can get a security clearance in no time, you can start in, I believe two weeks or whatever it was. And, um, and so that was sort of the happenstance that landed me in LA. Mm. I was supposed to, I had specialized throughout my degree in M-commerce. So mm -hmm. sort of like the precursor for e-commerce yeah. and uh, was gonna write a status report on the wireless market in the US. And it just so happened that at the time, Scandinavia was three to five years ahead of the US. And so this report became a bestseller in Denmark and the foreign ministry don't really do bestsellers. So um, I suggested, why don't I go home and talk to some of the incubators in Denmark and see if any of the companies actually would be interested in coming to the US. Mm. And when you're 24, you have balls, right? You have no idea what yeah. you don't know. So you go home, you, you sell it. And, um, and we got customers and um, the foreign ministry is, is, is a very different structure. It's, a, it's an old school system, yeah. things take time. And, and so in a way, my boss um, sort of saw an opportunity to, to breach into um, a very different clientele. And so um, I got hired uh, as a local employee and, um, and essentially started taking Danish uh, mobile tech companies mm -hmm. in the U.S. back in 2001. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Back, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and that sort of became, you know, what was supposed to be six months uh, ended up being a 20-year journey. And <laughs> a lot of people always ask me, being from Denmark, why the hell would you leave Denmark? It's like the happiest people on the planet and yeah, all of that. Yeah. And while I love coming home and obviously love seeing family and friends, um, the U.S. for me is a way to be myself. I feel like building disruptive companies in a conformity country is tough. Mm. But here, you could literally come up with the craziest idea and your friends would back you and say, that sounds like <laughs> a great idea. Or that sounds untraditional. Or that sounds hard. But, you know, let us know if you need anything. There is there's sort of a consensus around breaking the mold in the U.S. Mm. and probably particularly in a city like New York, where I've lived since 2004. Um, Interesting. Okay, so, you know, I understood and afterwards you, you, you were basically, you had a couple of positions basically working uh, in, in, in the country. Uh, and then tell, tell me kind of, or guide me through your time, you know, uh, you, you being in New York, I mean, you lived probably already by then for a couple of years there. Talk me through your first kind of, you know, entrepreneurial steps that you took then basically in the city, you know, like saying, like, okay, you know, uh, because I, I find this in particular interesting because if you're, you know, you have some sort of, you know, job that you're probably doing and then, you know, you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to do something by myself, guide me through that first period. And then, you know, let's go chronologically basically through these towards what you're doing today, kind of. Yeah. So um, again, it was sort of, I had fulfilled my job with Hummel, my job really was to get them licensed. And um, when my job was done, I moved back to Denmark and really 
didn't didn't I hadn't lived in Denmark for a long time at this point and got a job and and thought I was going to be I can, I remember it because I was like 30 years old and I remember I'm going to be an adult I bought an apartment I was going to be like getting an adult job and doing all that and within six months of being in Denmark it was very clear that I needed to go back home <laughs> in quotation back home to New York and so not having a job um on this side of the pond just made it sort of impossible. So I started looking at what are the ways that you can actually get visas to do mm-hmm. your own thing. And so ever since then, I've been on treaty investor visas. It's actually only this year that I changed into another visa status. And so for me, it was really the, the predominant was I wanted to go back. Mm-hmm. And since I had already built a couple of businesses before I really sort of had a career, mm-hmm. um, that was my my natural habitat. I've never really seen myself as a government employee for life or anything like that. So um, so it was really about coming up with an idea. And I think most of what life is all about is is believing in something really from you know the bottom of your your stomach. And so I took a product that I really believed in, and I put all of my savings into buying you know, a couple of containers of this. And then I, then I went to America, really like old school, sort of like my grandparents, <laughs> siblings in the thirties looking for oil, right? And, um, and then I arrived September of 2008 and the world was just crumbling. <laughs> I had these containers of like super expensive designer goods from Denmark. And I thought to myself, wow, if I try and get this in the right doors, which is impediment in New York. If you don't get in the right doors, it's sort of like a pecking order. Yeah. It wouldn't sell this. And, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? And luckily for me, I had some of my dearest friends that had just relocated to Jamaica. Hmm. And so I started going to Jamaica a lot. Like I basically, when they had their farewell party in Jamaica, uh-huh. I knew people when they did, because I had been browsing the beach for many, many months. But what what happened was I started thinking about how would I get rid of all my product, but without actually selling the product, but building an experience around it. Mm. And it it started because I had friends here that were she worked for the UN and and he built um, Skatistan, which is like skate parks in in refugee camps. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Often traveling, and at the time their daughter Ida Yu was ten months. And I um, took her to a, I think it was called a Jimboree class, but it was basically supposedly a class where the kid would um, get enhanced motor skills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I sat in a circle and somebody threw a ball in the air and played like a cassette tape and charged me 30 bucks. So after the class, I said, I would like a refund. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, I don't see this child having had any movement at all. So definitely (laughs) challenge to motor skills and they said well when you're 10 months old uh, you're not old enough to be really challenged yet and I was like well why are you having classes then anyway long story short I go back and talk to my parents who are teachers my father studied psychology and um, and my father says well actually all gross motor skill enhancement if not initiated in the first year um, you you miss a window and Mm. that actually is the foundation for all cognitive learning later in life. So Mm -hmm. it became a little bit of a buck in my head, which is typically how my business start. 
And I started borrowing kits, uh, mostly from the US, going to all sorts of <laughs> and, and I got very upset with the way that they were doing things. And yeah. then I started doing the same in Denmark. And when I looked at the two countries and the approach of small children, it right. was like in the US, they would be sitting with the kids on the lap, like striking their hair. And in Denmark, they would take a kid and they would roll it up in a blanket and let go. And everything I saw in Denmark, I thought, wow, if you did this in the US, the liability, like it's a litigious country, you wouldn't get away with it. Mm -hmm. And so the idea basically became to build a motor skill enhancement program for small children that um, was was doable within the sort of parameters of society. And so... (laughs) We built uh, nine to 18 months and 18 months to three-year classes and mm-hmm. are now mandatory in all of Equinox's um, uh, in, in North America, I guess, globally. Mm-hmm. So um, so we ended up with something that was was pretty spectacular and it was, it was fun having very small co-workers. I've also never been in a work environment with more sexual harassment because two-year-olds, they fall in love <laughs> in a way that... <laughs> In a way that we don't uh, we don't often see uh, adults do. Yeah, so you yeah, come yeah. to work and there'll be like a little Japanese boy with his nose up against the window, yeah, and yeah, standing yeah. for an hour waiting <laughs> for yeah. the teacher to come. So um, it was lovely, but it also sort of set off the journey of um, you know building another space. And right about the time when I had started this company, I had had a doctor's office visit. Uh, I had struggled with autoimmune disease for 20 years. And at this moment in time, my doctors had told me they had quote unquote great news. And upon arriving at the hospital, they proceeded to tell me I wasn't gonna die in the quote unquote immediate future, mm-hmm. which really wasn't quite satisfying. And so when asking about my process, I was told that they were happy with my numbers. And yeah. as mentioned, I'm an economist. And so he could probably have told me anything other than that. Um, I sort of saw years of data running through my head and I thought, wow, you have absolutely no idea how to help me. And so I left UCLA that day and called my mom actually and said, I'm not going back. And so while I was building the Tumblastic business, I had this sort of personal project, which was now that I had sort of quit on the established system I needed to find another way and for me that other way was turning my life into numbers Um, this was pre-quantified self so it was really quite tediously writing down in journals and after a couple of weeks realizing that I couldn't make sense of the data day by day week by week and so turning it all into excel spreadsheets assigning metadata by timestamps by location Um, pictures started to form, patterns started to emerge. And in five months, I proved out that I wasn't a cardiac patient. And I had done weekly EKGs, blood thinners, cholesterol, Mm -hmm. basically anything meant for my grandmother, I had done since I was 24. And I thought, wow, if I can get rid of the label that everybody says is the reason for all my other diagnoses, I can probably get rid of all of it. And my lucky draw was that I didn't know anything about healthcare. So mm-hmm. I just started and literally AB tested my way through a 16 month period. But at that time, I was literally able to normalize my blood work, reverse all of my disease symptoms, 
and um, taper myself off all of my medication. And so in the early days of building my last company, I really sort of was in this, um, I don't know what you call it, but a little bit of frustration, I guess, with the established system. And so when Kevin Kelly, who at the time was starting um, Quantified Self, had the basement full of geeks that were biohacking, that mm -hmm. sort of became my playground. And so for, I guess, three or four years, it was really all about nights and evenings were really all about trying to help others do the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and so by 2000, I don't know if it's 15 or 16, 16 probably, um, when Equinox sort of took over on the Tumblastics, I, um, I had had 70 people with different diagnoses that has replicated what I had done for myself. Okay, okay. If you can take 70 people with different diagnoses and alleviate their symptoms, you can probably take thousands. Mm -hmm. So Miami was, you know, we had, we had been tinkering and really a lot of the instrumental early work um, was done before this, mm -hmm. but at this point it turned into recruiting 50 severe lupus patients, starting to, to do the real work. And obviously now when you're talking about it, it sounds like, oh, then we recruited 50 people. Well, yeah. the reality is I went hospital to hospital and tried to get anyone within the frame of lupus to even listen to us. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, the general gist was, we are doing, you know, studies for journaling publishing, mm -hmm. and um, you have to follow the guidelines of how things are done. So when you come here with a process where everybody needs different things, that's not how trials are done. It's two arms, right? And um, and it became very clear that we weren't going to be able to actually within the established system prove out the miracles that we were doing on an everyday basis, and so. We were lucky that Richard Park from CDMD and a lot of his um, founding team and doctors had been early investors in Miami. And so basically CDMD, uh, all of the initial trial members were really all from there. And um, so we, we did it completely on our own outside of um, institutions and took 50 severe lupus patients and were able to prove out that we could improve fatigue, which is the main complaint by 87%. Mm -hmm. And we had pretty spectacular data across everything from chronic pain to overall improvement in physical activity and stuff. So good actually that when we sent it to the first journal for publishing, we were required to hire their statisticians to look at the data because they simply didn't believe that anyone could create the data that we've been able to do. Mm. So Changing healthcare in the US is a rather large um, bite. Uh, mm -hmm. We've, uh, I think many times sort of banged ourselves over the head, but at the same time, it's also fascinating, right? Because I think as entrepreneurs, at least building in disruptive spaces, we like problems more than we like the end result almost. And so navigating a very complex system where a lot of things, like in our case, when, when an insurer is paying for something, but it's a different individual that's actually getting the benefit, mm 
or um, other other parts of sort of the equation sort of a counterintuitive. Um, you know, we we have a system, healthcare system in the U.S. where nobody minds paying three thousand dollars to confirm that the patient has the stomachache that they have, but then when it comes to actually understanding what could we do from a lifestyle and environmental perspective, the system is not geared for it because there's not a diagnostic code and there's not a um, CPT code. And so it really was working up against the system that was not ready for the kind of product that we were bringing to market. And, um, and that have of course uh, both brought um, some very fascinating and intriguing times, but it's also brought a lot of heartache in yeah. the sense that, um, that you're sort of feeling like you can do all of this positive change for the individual patient, but you're not scaling and rolling it out in the way that you had originally hoped. Um, or at least yeah. I think that's the thing, like as entrepreneurs, I think we are so impatient. We want everything yesterday. And so healthcare has definitely um, taught me how to pace myself a little. <laughs> Get more realistic with it, right? Um, no, but uh, you know, one question I had is, um, I, it, it's it's very interesting. I mean that uh, you know again you you started out from your own kind of like pain point, right? Um, in, into the into into Miami. And my question, however, is because you said, and I find this fascinating, right? You said like, okay, so uh, I had no background in the space, right? And no no background in the healthcare space. You were you know a, a patient, right? So uh, like probably a lot of people are. But just you know, you happen to be an entrepreneur. Um, but obviously, in in a, in a space like this, right, um, it is very very important as well to have kind of you know also the right people on board. So, who did you? Who were kind of like the first people that you got on board for Miami in the sense of you know really you know you being you know really kind of the 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 you know the business person you know the 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 really the entrepreneurial type kind of that is that has an issue sees an issue and you know kind of wants to build a solution for that, who was kind of the first people that you got on board for that? So the reality is that there's been many people as a part of the journey. Um, the original sort of love child was born out of me and a dear friend Thomas's work. Um, he was a, um, um, what's it called? sort of an agile lean programmer in Denmark consultant and would come to New York to play jazz a couple of months a year. And as a part of one of those trips, he was working out of my apartment and he saw my data and he said, Oh, have you seen mine? And he opened up an Excel spreadsheet and he was trying to debug his allergies in a very similar fashion to how I had looked at my health. And we literally within five minutes shook hands and said, okay, we're gonna do this. Um, at the time, being that it was a hard problem and it wasn't necessarily as straightforward, it took an enormous amount of thought process to actually both figure out how to build the technology, mm -hmm. have interactions, because it's mining sort of different things, right? Yes, there's a, there's a technology component of how to, how to sort of collect data and use data, mm -hmm. but it's also a huge sort of human component in the sense how how do you interact with people how mm -hmm. do you how do you figure out like we realized early on that if we ask people about their doctor in the first visit it would take us three weeks longer 
to reverse the disease symptoms. Mm-hmm. And understanding, well, why is that? Is it just because of the autonomy of a doctor? What are the what are sort of the reasons that things sort of play out the way that they do? And so um Miami would not have been without Thomas and I being obsessed about solving for this problem. And also, I think when you have the kind of friendship that we had, we really explored things that were sort of uncomfortable as a part of the process. Mm. When Thomas decided to go a more academic route and um, move back to Denmark, um, Daniel Rothman, who was our COO for a couple of years, came on board, much more entrepreneurial, much more um, understanding of sort of like the US space, um, was the one who pushed a lot for like getting us into incubators. We were a part of uh, plug and play in a, in San Francisco. We were part of Propeller in Louisiana, uh, DreamIt in in uh, Philly, and really doing these acceleration programs and, and getting the network up. And um, And when Daniel departed the business, a friend of mine, stepped in and was the COO. And again, someone I've known for 20 years who had an immense understanding of the, the business space and being an entrepreneur and having built businesses and exited businesses. So I want to say that Miami's had many parents along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times people look to the founder at the end of the day, but the reality is the founder is the one that has a vision, but it doesn't necessarily uh, equate into having built it right mm-hmm. as a team you built something and we've had the pleasure of having an enormous amount of support in Miami, uh, both internally from people who you know my first employee is still working for Miami today which is sort of an immense proud moment <laughs> but but also from the outside um we've from the very beginning been very clear that when people had a lot of questions instead of trying to answer the questions, we would take them, their mother, their best friend or somebody through Miami so they could truly understand what it is that we do. And that has really resulted in us being in a place today where we've had people from all walks of life through Miami. And, you know, we, we were hiring a PA in the fall and she wanted references. And I said, sure, I'll get the human resources to get back with you with references. And then half an hour later, she called me and she goes, actually, never mind. I spoke to the president of the hospital that I work in in Atlanta. And he said that if you if I had the opportunity and the luck to get to work with you guys, he would um, he would only give me his blessings. (laughs) And I thought to myself, who like I don't even know. Like I looked up the person. I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of his hospital. (laughs) I'd never been to Atlanta. But I thought to myself, sometimes when you pay it forward and, and talk to a lot of people and, and come from the right place, right? We, we weren't trying to dismantle anything that worked. We were trying to help people that didn't have solutions in this space, reclaiming their health and, and getting back to the stuff that's exciting. Uh, picking up your kids from school, um, you know, making love on the beach, like stuff that, that actually matters. And I think, Having you know taken my own journey, I definitely know the toll it takes to not be able to predict whether you're going to be able to show up for dinner tomorrow night. But when it when we look at the data in the U.S., it's one in five Americans that have an autoimmune condition. Mm-hmm. We have over 41 million 
pre-autoimmune, which is essentially similar to like a pre-diabetes state. Yeah. Um, we have now 25 million long COVID patients. So the numbers are staggering, but more so than anything, over 80% are women. It is the leading cause of death in women aged 19 to 49. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a really impactful disease that we have not really gotten a good um, response to at this point in the healthcare system. Um, autoimmunity in, as, a, as a general is called when your immune system, quote unquote, gets confused and attacks itself. Like if cancer had been like confusion state still, we would probably have been in a very different place. But back when a lot of the research went into cancer, um, a very prominent doctor said there's no way that the body would have a flaw, which essentially would be attacking itself. Hmm. And instead of researching into autoimmunity, it sort of was left for a couple of decades. And when one of my biggest things is, looking at where versus why, because autoimmunity has been sort of categorized as over a hundred different diseases based on where the body is getting attacked. Mm. And in reality, why is a much more interesting question. And if I had cancer, let's say I had breast cancer and you had prostate cancer, nobody would doubt that we had the same disease. It was just located in different places. Yeah. With autoimmune disease, instead of saying this is an autoimmune response, we've been so focused on where in the body. And if I had, let's say, a lump in my breast today and I didn't go to a doctor for seven years, I can promise you that would have spread too. So we've just sort of not looked at autoimmunity through the realm of how we generally look at a disease. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I was just thinking, so, you know, it- Clinical validation is, 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 you know, with, with kind of health, healthcare um, startups or healthcare companies is, is kind of oftentimes what I see, you know, the very annoying part, but also the crucial element when it comes to winning in the long term. Um, so this is, this is what I've, what I've seen from, from many companies and also many founders that I talk to. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really annoying. It's, 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 it's time consuming. <laughs> exactly. It's time consuming. It's expensive, et cetera, but it's, it's, a, it's nevertheless a very strategic aspect. So how, how was that um, playing a role for you guys in, in, in your journey so far, because you've been going on for almost, you know, well, more, more than half a decade, right? Yeah. So from our, our perspective, it was everything like the data has to has to be able to prove out clinically what we're doing, right? And so, um, especially because we've been seeing patients with over 67 different autoimmune diseases to date. So of course we have some diseases where we have very small numbers um, and other diseases where we have larger numbers. Um, the, The further in, like initially we were collecting names, right? Doing studies with Will Connell, getting Mass General, UCSF, like uh, Northwell, like really good institution names on the docket. And as we were sort of going through the process of very, very slow development, um, like we've also, like we're doing a study with the NIH, right? It's it's a very different process than, than doing research inside a startup. And so one of the things that became abundantly clear to us is that 
as the world is changing, and especially the pace that the world is changing with now post-COVID, real-world evidence is going to be much more um, important in the future. So um, for us, a lot of the data that we are spending our time and effort on today is actually ensuring that we use the right scoring, um, clinically validated scoring tools and measurements for the population in general. And um, we're just about to launch another bout of data and it's it's humbling to see how well it works. It's 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 so good that the the the, the doctors initially internally on the team redid everything again a couple of times just to ensure that it actually was true that what we are doing has the impact that it does clinically. Um, and I think I, I, I see us as sort of like leading in the autoimmune space today, um, but others outside of us have started to understand the, the depth and the understanding of what we've built because we've essentially built a tool that can unravel disease of an unknown character. So when Mount Sinai came to us in May of 2020, they basically said, we're starting to see these new patients. We have no label for them. We don't know what's going on with them, but it sort of looks autoimmune. And these were the very, very first long haulers, or I think they call them long COVID in Europe, but essentially people who beyond 90 days of getting COVID were mm -hmm. still. And so we took on initially just, I think 40 patients, but looking at the data, it became very clear that not only was it an acceleration of pre-autoimmunity, but it was almost identical symptomology. The only thing is that there is some cardiovascular um, implications with the long COVID population that we don't see in autoimmunity. But other than that, we really had, um, you know, sort of a almost exact overlap. And it was, was fascinating to look at the data and see that we could actually, by teasing out sort of different aspects, see that, hey, if you're vegan or vegetarian, you look like you're going to get a lot more sick. Mm -hmm. And instead of having the judgment and saying, hey, people who are vegan are not doing the right things in terms of supplements, we said, what else do all of these people have in common? And so we started looking across the entire broad spectrum and saying, what if it's protein? And so we actually measured out for each individual how many grams of protein they had on a daily basis. And we could see that it didn't matter whether you're vegan or vegetarian or carnivore. What matters was how many grams of protein did you have on a daily basis? And the curve was exactly um, um, converse in terms of, of symptomology. And so getting medical protein shakes into people's diets helped. But like having low hanging interventions that help people at a time when everybody, including the WHO and, and the best specialists at hospitals, had more questions than answers. Uh, we were able to come up with solutions or interventions that actually could help the individual in the process. We still might not know all of the reasons why they were reacting the way they, they were. We're getting more answers, but we're still in, in a pretty uh, dark room when it comes to COVID. Um, and I think that's what's fascinating, that we can actually use technology and this sort of um, like 
we, we used to, Thomas and I used to have a working title for Miami that was Toyota Health, because essentially, you know, the, the input output, um, just in time methodology fit very well to us applying it to humans. Mm -hmm. And so I think Harvard was um, the institution that coined distant analogous fields, but it's essentially taking something that's already been tested and tried in one um, area and then applying it to something different. And we are essentially applying process optimization, like think Deming to, to the body. And in doing so, we've been able to not only unravel the underlying causes of a lot of these autoimmune diseases, but I think it will be something that in the future will be a part of changing the way we look at the, at the medical system. Interesting. So if you, if you kind of um, look back at, at, at what you guys have achieved and, and also look, look, look forward, you know, uh, maybe, you know, this question is a little bit more from a strategic kind of, you know, venture, probably also venture capital perspective, um, or, you know, business perspective, let's put it differently. Um, how do you also, you know, economically speaking, we're, we're in, in really crazy, strange times. Um, how do you see that having an impact on, you know, your next, you know, 24 months or so, let's say, Let, let's, let's put that as a time frame, you know, you as, as, as the CEO and, and, and kind of as a founder figure in that, how do you, what do you make out of that? What does that play, play out for you guys in the sense also maybe for, Uh, funding, you know, etc. And and also maybe the the type of projects that you can can undergo the maturity that you can put into, um, or that you can move up in, in the sense of development, product development, etc. Um, yeah. What what is your mind kind of like going on right now? So, so I think from our perspective, if you had asked me before February 2020, we would have been going more and more into preventative uh, autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. Um, essentially, we coined it as sort of preventative rheumatology, but we have a, a pretty solid protocol for cardiovascular, for diabetes and so on, and none have had it implemented in rheumatology to date. So that I think we would have seen as the mission prior to COVID, but COVID really changed the landscape in a major way. Um, we were the first to, to have a protocol out that could alleviate the, the problems with long COVID. Mm -hmm. So... For us, I think the next 24 months will be heavily influenced by long COVID still. Um, it's still a way for us to insert ourselves into the established system. Mm -hmm. So the competition we will see in the autoimmune space, they're all building physician practices. And yes, they'll put in some behavior change. They'll, they'll you know, sort of grace what we've sort of seen as, as general technology delivery in, in, in digital health. But the reality is that we deliver care in a very specific, exact way mm -hmm. that um, I think will we'll be more about getting to the rheumatologists that are currently drowning. So in the US, every rheumatologist has 44,000 uh, people. So as you can imagine, there's simply not enough manpower yeah. and not a... a, a It's not an upcoming area. So we're not seeing a lot of new people coming out as rheumatologists. And so we're actually having an enormous scarcity on specialists in this area. 
And so we really want to be working in conjunction with the established system. We do not touch medication, you know, vaccines. Mm. Like there's a lot of things that we leave to the physicians, but the physicians have always known that there was triggers. The reality is that when somebody comes into a less than 15 minute session, it's very hard to tease out whether they like me have an allergy to chicken mm-hmm. or the next person has to avocados. Mm-hmm. It, and so what we want to be is we want to be a tool for the established rheumatologist, neurologist to essentially enable people to understand what goes on between those doctor's visits. When you go into your specialist visits and you get your blood drawn, it's a snapshot in time. But what you do in between your visits, your daily activities, your lifestyle environment has been proven out to be more than 80% of your autoimmune response. And so that's the portion that we want to fill. And nobody else um, has the understanding of the depth of research that we do in that space. So I think from our perspective, it will be about getting very focused on the people who are struggling today and, um, and then really over time, working our way to becoming a first line intervention. Interesting. Okay. That's, um, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Do you, do you, is, is that like, because you, you mentioned long COVID and, and is that just such a big business opportunity as well? You know, I, I think it's difficult to, uh, or not difficult, sorry. It's, um, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, interesting to, to, to talk about business when, when the business is health. Right. But is, is that, is that such a, you know, is there such a high request in that regard for, for the, the long haul? So in the U.S. alone, we have 25 million that are currently diagnosed and millions of people that are still undiagnosed. So, yes, it's a big business opportunity, but that's actually not why we are in the necessarily the audience from an autoimmune perspective. We we knew already in March 2020 that this was going to happen because viruses and infections have always been a known trigger for autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. past it was like Lyme's disease or Epstein-Barr more like obscure but now we had 100 million Americans that were infected by COVID so we knew that we were going to see a humongous race in in the numbers um, how many people that actually were struggling what 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 has been fascinating from a long COVID perspective is that long COVID presented an opportunity to understand autoimmune better that anything before it has in history. So generally, if autoimmune disease, it, it never get, happens overnight. Mm. It's so slow boiling. It's almost like that frock that boils in cold water versus <laughs> thrown in yeah. hot water, right? And so people who have autoimmune disease have been building for a decade or two. Yeah. When somebody with long COVID gets those same symptoms overnight, that presents a unique opportunity for understanding of triggers that would never be able to sort of unravel over decades. People can't remember what they did three days ago, Never mind 20 years ago, right? Mm. So so for us, that has given us a unique perspective and some insight into autoimmune disease and how we could actually unravel the underlying core of these diseases in a way that has been interesting. So yes, 
of course, from a business perspective, this is a unique opportunity because no one, even the hospitals that have long COVID apartments and you know specialties and whatever, they don't really have answers. So of course, there's an opportunity from that perspective, but there's also um, some fundamental understanding that can change the way we, we essentially um, see medical literature and delivery in the future hidden in all of this um, sadness that is that mm. is my this um, you know long COVID hitting as many people and and having the impact it does it's two percent of everyone is on disability now yeah that uh, that is uh, that is crazy I, I actually did not look into the numbers I just know okay there is definitely some considerable uh, and I think uh, so we talked about this prior because before I recorded it right press record I think um, you know a lot of people have it kind of right now in the, in the summer you know uh, hoping that things are, are not going back to where they were uh, maybe 12 months ago or, or for, for that matter but it, it's still not over right uh, you mentioned quickly Epstein Barr um, you know it, it's interesting maybe <laughs> I, I actually got hit by Epstein Barr in, in last December uh, I never, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> and when I got hit, I, I was like, I was so surprised by, by the impact of it. And, and then when I, when I started reading into it, I was like, that is crazy. It is so crazy that I was not aware of this. <laughs> and the more I dug into it, it's, 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 it's really, really, really incredible in, in, in the sense of its, its potential impact, right? Like I, luck, I, 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 I was, I was, I don't know. I, I'm phrasing it as lucky. I was lucky in the sense of like, okay, I got, I had a normal kind of like, uh, you know, reaction. process. Yeah, reaction in the sense, you know, was was obviously out for a couple of weeks and and stuff, and and it was was had to had to move it slow with with a physical physical activity and stuff. But I did not really have any long term kind of effects out of that, right? But that is really a case. Like that that is definitely something that is that is supposedly happening to a lot of people. So. Yeah, I have friends that literally spend a year in a brain fog from having Epstein-Barr. Crazy. So uh, I'm glad you locked out, but but you're right. It is, it, when we're talking about COVID and for example, and this is something that people always sort of look at me like I'm an evil person. But I said to someone last year, I said, COVID will exist for a long time, but people will, it will be less and less deadly as it iterates. And I'm not a doctor, so I can say whatever I want, right? <laughs> the reality is that, in my opinion, a virus wants to maintain. Yeah, yeah exactly. Expand. Yeah. And if you kill the host, your the, chance of, of yeah. doing that is going to decline. So yeah. it, it's it, it makes sense that it will be more and more contagious and less and less deadly. Um, does that mean that there's not people who are getting hit in a in a major way today? No, but what actually is the scariest part about it is that of all the people that if we like really rewind two years and go back to the beginning of 2020, the people that were on ventilators that were so sick, it was like a matter of life and death. They don't have long COVID. That's not the population that's struggling long-term. If they survived the ventilator, they rehabilitated and got back to their life. Hmm. The prime candidate for long COVID is someone who had mild to non-existing COVID. And then three weeks, four weeks, some period of time later, woke up one day 
and felt like they weren't themselves. That's crazy. Long COVID is a conundrum in the sense that it's almost like like a little, like I always think, like I like to think of things in like computer ways, but like if you think of like, like you have a, you, you plant a little virus in somebody's yeah. system and it's like a Trojan horse all of a sudden. It yeah. And it can make major disruption more so than a lot of other things. And, and that's almost what COVID is. It's almost like herpes. If you yeah. have infection, we have no idea. People had herpes as children and all of a sudden as adults with five years in between, they have like a little bit. Yeah. And we don't know about COVID. Is COVID something that will sort of die off? Or is it like herpes, something that once your system has been infected, it will sort of be implanted in a way? And if so, what will the implications be on fertility? All of the things that essentially could be impacted by, by this. And I think there's many questions to be asked, but the established healthcare system, it's, it's almost afraid of asking a lot of them because it's terrifying to think of the implications of what that could look like. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. So again, you know, sorry for me getting back to the Epstein example, but, no, but, uh, but you know, I, I think there's so much attention on it right now, right? And when I was reading up on, on Epstein, right? Uh, the, 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 there's also there was obviously there's research going on you know still ongoing with the virus etc and then you know you kind of like understanding that this virus is like has been going on you know for many decades already right it's it's its origin is like i don't know somewhere in the 70s or something like that uh, or in the 80s i don't even know and that you know uh, nobody like and there has been different different kind of studies going on right there has been different associations found etc but um, well, apparently, I guess, um, you know, in the sense of how it plays out, it's, you know, yes, there is a huge number of people that get some severe kind of effects on it. But but that is, you know, after decades of kind of like, you know, observing it and it and it and, you know, it, it happening, you know, the, the virus kind of like being there. And as you said, right, it, it, it iterates, right, it, 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 it changes. And like with Epstein there, I think there's like four different protein layers or so compared to, for example, COVID or so. And, and, and what you said is, is very interesting because there's so much attention on COVID. It's going to be interesting to see like, okay, for this particular virus, what are the implications long-term on different aspects for different kind of, you know, uh, individual uh, groups, et cetera, um, you know, nationalities, et cetera, all, all these kind of different demographic uh, things, right? Uh, this, is, this is definitely going to be super interesting, yeah. So it's interesting as, as this is sort of an entrepreneurial journey, I think from, from my perspective, what is starting to, to grasp my eye more and more as we are sort of thinking about implications for the world is really the sustainability of how we live and work and do, right? Because yeah. the reality is that, you know, when I grew up, people had a little bit of seasonal allergies. Today, yeah people have peanut allergies and you barely get on a plane without having to be told you can't eat, you know, certain things because there's one person out of the 500 people on the plane that has some sort of allergy. Like we have man-made mucked a lot of things up. And yeah. so I think from my perspective, what will be interesting is to see how will we as entrepreneurs be able to help look at poverty, at climate change, at a lot of the sustainability goals 
that was set up by the UN to be accomplished by 2030. We are writing 22. Yeah, I have uh, never yeah. seen I've never seen paramount change happen in eight years, right? So we're really at a place where I think a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly people who like to disrupt spaces, really should be turning their eye to some of these conundrums that we clearly all see in our day to day, right? I don't think anyone is taking summer weather for granted the way they were 10 years ago. <laughs> it's either gonna be boiling hot or rainy or whatever. But, but I think we are, we've, we've turned our eyes so much to what can we, how can we optimize? How can we, and I don't wanna say abuse, but how can we commercialize like what's going on in Africa, right? Russia, China, and the U.S. are basically just in the running for who can own this country and the natural resources and the people and everything that goes with it. When in reality, at least growing up in a socialist country like Denmark, Danita was there as sort of an organization to help people in Africa rise. Mm -hmm. I think we've come to this world order now where it's all about keeping people in check. And we're seeing politically a lot of things that at least with, with my, my political views are terrifying. It's terrifying to see that it's all about where you're from and, and uh, what your religious background is and so on versus who you are as humans and, and how we all fit into sort of the, the world order. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely, that's a, definitely a fair point. And, and, and it's, it's very, what is it? it it's a very psycho, not psychological, philosophical, uh, um, you know, kind of question in a sense. Um, and, and you're right. So eight years. Yeah, <laughs> that's, not, that's not, that's not a lot of time. And, 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 and it's also what is interesting, what you said is, um, you know, it, it seems like, you know, it seems like there's definitely, um, um, this example of what you said, like that there's more people having allergies to everything or whatever, you know, so it seems like human on a physiological level are, are getting weaker. And <laughs> that's, that, that's definitely somehow, uh, you know, something that I also observe. And, and I think a lot of what we don't understand is that we do it to ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. We, we, like, if you think about like the easiest one, celiac disease, was something that has been known. It's a, it has a disease label. It has a CPT code. There's a blood test that you can do for it. And still only one in five with celiac is diagnosed. 97%, and I'm not going to get two numbers oriented here, although it's hard for me to, uh, to keep hold back, but 97% of everyone, no matter whether you are healthy or vulnerable, has perforation of their intestines as a result of eating gluten. However, the more vulnerable you are, the bigger the implication. So you can go from being a little sensitive to having major vulnerability around it to being completely celiac and unable to, to have it without getting extremely sick. We can look at that and say, oh, we must have changed as humans or we've changed the products. So back in the 50s, when Wonder Bread came out in the US, we essentially, what gluten does is gluten is a protein that makes things soft and elastic. Mm-hmm. So by adding sort of GMO wise, changing the way the wheat so that it contained a lot more gluten, 
you could make Wonder Bread something. You could sit on it for 12 hour plane ride. When you got up, that Wonder Bread will like pop up normal. <laughs> but that was the first, right? We saw some, we saw quality in something and we decided we want more of it. So we, we added a lot more gluten. Then the next step was that if you go to Italy, for example, every pizzeria has made the dough in the night before it, it rises over a 24 per, hour period. And then that slow rising process eats away the gluten. That's a part of why you make that long rise. In the industrialization in the US, we decided we wanted fast rising yeast. So now we take a product that used to have a small percentage, we made it a huge percentage. And then we remove the process that's supposed to alter the content. So we, we've basically taken a lot of processes and change them. So what gluten is today is not what gluten was 10 years ago or 50 years ago. And if you look at different countries, people who can't eat gluten in the US can go to Italy and eat pasta all day. The yeah. moment they come back to the US and try and replicate it, they won't be able to because of the way that we have tinkered with the food chain. Yeah, so yeah. When I talk about sustainability, I talk a lot about what are all the things that we as a society do that sort of come before the disease, because I think that's where we need the real disruption because yes, we are on a, on a, on a track in Miami to help people who have caught autoimmune disease to sort of pull back. But the reality is once you have the diagnosis, you're vulnerable for life. You can be symptom free, but it will take work and it will take navigation to, to keep being symptom free. Whereas if we actually, found a way to sort of get further back in the in the line we could potentially prevent our kids from going through that same journey yeah i, I that, that you know what this is a, this is a good note to end it um because we're running already over time uh method thanks thanks so much for 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 being on the show it was really great having you on uh it was really interesting um you know getting the insight uh would be definitely good to you know, to observe where you guys are heading. You're definitely doing some great work. You know, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. As always, interesting.